I was really simply a technologist and I didn't have opportunity or didn't make opportunity to really engage with other business leaders. But as I moved on to my current role, it was an open door. And I realized that to be more effective than I had previously been, it really required me to engage with the other business leaders and to have strong connections with them. And so I started thinking about, well, what makes me a better business leader, someone that they will want to work with? From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Scott Mosier, CISO at Sabre Corporation. After 25 years in the Air Force, Scott retired as a colonel to try his hand at the private sector. Now he's transforming the role of CISO from technical expert to business executive. He joins us to share his mindset on bringing value to customers and contributing to the overall success of his organization. Trust is key as a CISO, whether it's trusting your team, earning trust from the board, or even being trusted by clients. So what's the number one job of a leader? How important is transparency when things go wrong? And is it better to make a bad decision or no decision at all? Scott, thank you so much for being a part of the show. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Well, thank you very much. So my name is Scott Mosier, and I work at Sabre as the Chief Information Security Officer. I have been with Sabre for four years now. And for those of you who are not familiar with Sabre, we are a technology company that specializes in the development of software solutions for all things travel. So airlines, travel agencies, hotels, and many other sort of ancillary products. Yeah, I didn't know uh, how much you guys actually were involved with, uh, especially, do you not do a fair amount even like on the kind of the scheduling engines? I didn't realize that a lot of times when you're working with your favorite hotels or airlines, it's really using your software. Correct. And many people don't actually know that we're behind all of the websites that they use to either book their airline ticket or hotel. But Saver has been in this business since the 1960s. In fact, we were the company created from American Airlines that created electronic ticketing for air travel. And that business grew over many years into various types of software products to enable all sorts of travel. And today, we support about 40% of the world's travel business in terms of ticketing, running airlines, running hotels, your travel agencies that you would happen to use either for work or for personal travel. We provide all of that. We run something called a global distribution system, which is sort of the Airbnb or Uber of travel. We bring together all different sorts of travel suppliers with the end consumer so that they can purchase those opportunities. I had no idea. And not only are you interconnected with so many companies, but then you also, well, directly or indirectly, there's so many individuals like me that fly often. So there's millions upon millions of transactions with this. And so it's not only do you have to build great software, you have to make sure that it's highly available and scalable as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
I did an interesting study a couple of years ago. I was curious just how many uh, customer records we were storing on behalf of the airlines and hotels. And in that search, um, because we're required by contract and other regulatory requirements to keep data for a very long time, at any given time, we store about two and a half billion personal records from travelers all over the world. I personally looked and I had about 30 different airline trips that I had taken over several years that had to be maintained within our record. So, of course, data protection is absolutely at the very top of, of my list of concerns that I have to work on. You only had 30 records? You need to fly more if that's the case. Uh, well, this, you know, this, of course, has been during the pandemic. So it's not too bad considering that travel was a, uh, has been significantly constrained in the, during those years. So, Scott, you didn't start off as the CISO at Sabre. From our earlier conversation, you started in the Air Force, I think starting in 1990, if my notes are correct. Tell us about that beginning. I go back quite a ways. So I, I grew up in Ohio, went to Ohio State University, and pursued an, a bachelor's in electrical engineering. And I was on a, an Air Force Reserve Officer Training Course Scholarship, ROTC, um, and that paid my way through college. And as a result, I owed uh, the Air Force four years of service. And those four years turned into 25 years. So like many other people who serve in our nation's military, it is an extremely positive experience in life, great opportunities of all different sorts, whether it be education or travel or just working with really good people to serve our nation. And so that was a, a great opportunity. And through those years, I did a variety of information technology and eventually that led me into cybersecurity. You know, even back early in the early 90s, I started working cybersecurity, although we didn't call it that then. We called it things like information protection or multi-level security, all different kind of names. But yeah, long history. And I retired in 2014. And actually, I worked for the National Nuclear Security Administration for two and a half years, which was a very interesting place. And then I took a, the CISO job at Caesars Entertainment for three years, which was also another very interesting and unique place to work. What was it like? We'll go, well, maybe we'll just go here now. Uh, spending 25 years, we've had many veterans on with many different backgrounds. You had a technology focus in the Air Force, or you were leading men and women that had a technology focus, but you were fairly close to it. In that process, I know you're, you're always going to be involved in security. But in that window of 25 years, was it ever just dedicated to network security, information assurance, whatever version, whatever flavor of name, or was it more of a generalist type technology role? There were times when I was younger, right? You know, two or three year assignments where I focused on particular security positions. I had the opportunity in the early 1990s to work on a what we call the command and control system. It was a software program that allowed the Air Force to schedule and track all of their mobility flights, the, you know, moving cargo and moving people. And they had both an unclassified version of that system and a classified. And we actually built the first, what we called multi-level security system. In other words, one system that could run both of those. They had historically always been separated. So that was an opportunity to do software development, network security, 
and use this sort of technology that today we talk about like mandatory access controls, discretionary access controls. We did all of those sorts of things there. But I would say the most engaging opportunity I had was two years in the mid-2000s where I worked at Andrews Air Force Base. And I ran an organization of about 200 people that supported the airborne communications for Air Force One, um, all of the Air Force's blue and white jets that, you know, take our vice president or secretary of state all around the world. And we provided basically satellite communications anywhere in the world that those planes flew. And we also did the cybersecurity for them. So as you can imagine, many nation states would certainly want to see what is happening on Air Force One. And it was our job to protect and defend against that. And so we were very early users of certain network intrusion detection and prevention technologies. And it was really sort of exciting to be on the front ground of what today is everybody has. But back then, it was you know fairly unique and new. That's an interesting use case, certainly, to main. Basically, the mission is to maintain secure communication always, probably when they're on the ground as well. I mean, because that, that, that doesn't shut down. <laughs> That's nobody, you know, there, there's people there on that plane all the time, no matter if it's flying or not, right? So maintaining that. Was there anything in particular as you look back? Okay, so you have 25 years in service. Now you make a transition to sort of post, well, if you retired, right? You, you could have gone and just, you know, been fishing the entire time or something, you know, you decided to continue to work because I think you really have a passion for this, but it is very different. What are some of the things that you kind of encountered in this 25 year transition into what was, you know, Caesars and then now Sabre? Well, ultimately, uh, as op- I was an officer in the Air Force, and, and officers are first and foremost leaders. We're not technologists. And so every one of those years, I led groups of people, the smallest being you know, a team of maybe five. But one opportunity, I led a group of over 2,000 people. And it was very fulfilling for me to engage people and to see them grow, to mentor them, and to help them solve problems. And obviously, in that large group of 2,000 people, that wasn't 2,000 IT people. I actually had a great opportunity to lead firefighters and policemen and folks that drove fuel trucks, folks that were civil engineers, all different sorts of things that people would do. And so it was just really fulfilling to have a breadth of experience in life, because I think even as CISOs or cybersecurity people, the more we understand how our businesses work and the things that we need to accomplish, the more effective we can be in leading our cybersecurity teams and supporting them. And so my experiences in the Air Force really sort of developed me into, uh, you, you would call it a generalist. I would just say a, a set of very broad experiences that helped me to be more effective in working with the business leaders that I do. Just in this conversation alone, I mean, there's background in operations, there's background in software development, there's background in leading of people, there's understanding sort of the physical implications of bad technology or good technology. So I think there's a, a great variety there. One of the things that I've learned from some, and my father included, but many others I've worked with, there certainly is a mission change. But there's also even a language change when shifting from 
military to sort of the, the, the private side. Uh, did you encounter any of that in, in any form that you found that, that was a, a surprise? It was a huge surprise for me as I retired from the Air Force. You know, I, I retired as a colonel, very successful career. And I, of course, the reason I didn't just retire was I wanted challenge in life. I wanted to see if I could be as successful in business as I had been in the Air Force. But what I found as I retired is it's very difficult to make the transition into corporate America from being a military leader unless you are prepared to do so. And so one of the things I did as I retired is I went back and got my MBA because I didn't know the language that's used in corporate America, you know, balance sheets and, you know, various marketing and other terminology. And so I needed to prepare myself to understand basic concepts, the terminology, so that as I work with the other executives in the business, I'm able to do so in an intellectually valid way and not just trying to, you know, move myself through there. And I, I actually really enjoyed getting an MBA and it was probably the best and smartest move that I made to get into being a, a CISO of two very large and broad companies. So that, that's one thing to think about is, is military people retire is do you have the skills needed or expected in corporate America if that's where you desire to go? Which class was the most difficult for you? Marketing. <laughs> really? Uh, I'm, really? I'm not motivated by marketing, but I really came to respect how important it is to businesses. You know, things like finance and accounting, that was fun. The, the contract law, again, that was pretty interesting. But really, the marketing was just a very foreign concept to me. But now I understand. I and it's helpful because I look at my cybersecurity program as creating value for our customers. And I stand alongside our commercial teams who sell our products. And I will meet all the time with our customers telling them how good our cybersecurity program is and why that is bringing value to them as a customer of Sabre. It isn't easy. This is something I've learned on this side. So I spent my whole career on sort of the other side. I'm now at Exabeam and, and working for a company who makes software and makes security products and, and helps people uh, have a better security operations center. And the messaging around all of that and, you know, even a simple concept of, you know, a feature versus a benefit and how do you articulate that cleanly, I had never had to do myself. I never had to do any of that. I never had to think about it. And so I'm not responsible for that here, but I contribute to that as, as we all do. We all pitch in kind of oftentimes equally. So I laughed at the marketing class, but it is understanding that is extremely important. And the point that you just made about being a customer forward CISO at a large and successful company that is a differentiator. That is a value add. It helps speed up business. It creates lower friction situations because there's a, an extreme level of scrutiny on sort of third-party risk and vendor contracts and things. And so if you are an additive to that that speeds that up, that's an incredible value to the business, you and your team. So that's, but not everyone gets that. Not everyone has figured that out. So I think that's worth noting. It's come up on the show a couple of times, but having sort of a customer facing almost a marketing lens on your program uh, does matter. 
And that's, you mentioned that in an earlier conversation I had, uh, even you were meeting with, you know, your customer CISOs and things. It seems like you enjoy that. Uh, what's, what's maybe one thing you've learned to do really well for those listening? If you're going to interact with, you know, represent your company as a CISO for purposes of confidence in that company, what's a couple of things you've learned that uh, you need to really nail? The value of trust. I think one thing that the CISO can do that no one else can do as effective is create trust with the customers. And that requires significant transparency on the part of the service provider. And it's not easy. If you're in the middle of a, of a security incident, you have everyone on your company telling you to be very careful what you say because the legal team's worried about lawsuits or the commercial team's worried about losing customers. But ultimately, the customer CISOs want to understand what happened, what is the risk to them. And I don't believe there's a blame game. I believe we all understand that we live in a high threat world and we just want to understand the risk and what actions need to be taken. It's not a blame game. It's a trust game, in my opinion. And the CISO is perfectly positioned to be the focal point and catalyst for creating trust with customers. And I believe that's not only true in B2B business, but I've actually seen several B2C businesses that are extremely effective. And I will specifically call it my bank. I won't, won't tell you what bank it is, but I notice that they have a focus on educating their customers on cybersecurity. And they actually send out emails specifically about what they're doing to protect their customer accounts. And I'm like, this is fantastic that they care enough to communicate to their customers that that's part of the value proposition of why you want to be doing business with this bank. And I think that it shouldn't be a defensive position. It should be a proactive position of any company to help its customers understand what they're doing against the threats that we all face. It's certainly a good reminder and good marketing to lead with that rather than lead with, which you and I have probably both seen, with a notification that there's been a change. Like, so rather than, than reminding everyone that you're there and sort of looking at, you know, sort of advertising the fact that you are there and that you are monitoring things and take this seriously and sort of maybe telling a story through that. I don't think enough people sort of do that. It's, it's, it's just, hey, we're, we're going to make a change and you need to make this change. It's saying it kind of notifies you of the culture, which I think is where you're going with this. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And, and creating a culture of trust uh, will take you a long way when you have a ransomware incident or some other major security breach because it's going to happen to everybody. I mean, I really don't know of many CISOs I've talked to who have not experienced it at this point. And so build the trust while times are good, and that will carry you through when times are tough. You said it much better than I have in the past, but one of the things, I think I feel like I say this on every show now, so everyone's sick of hearing it. But one of my favorite things that I made up, uh, I didn't steal this from anybody, so it's, it's no one else said it because it's probably that weak, but you know, don't make an introduction in a crisis. And that's a very tactical message to more of a strategic idea that you're referencing to saying, hey, like you make that connection. Don't try to do it in a crisis or, uh, or with a stranger. My question to you is, how do you do that at scale? 
you were interacting with many other customers and uh, clients, I should say, and uh, other CISOs, there's a sort of an asymmetric problem. There's a one-to-many situation there. How is that done at scale? How does Scott do that at scale? Scott spends a lot of time working on it. And I will, I'll be honest, I cannot meet with every single customer's security team. Many of those teams, the businesses are small enough, they don't have a CISO. But for our strategic customers, I know every one of them by name. We have each other's cell phone number. And, you know, we will meet. Sometimes I meet monthly with them, sometimes quarterly. Sometimes it's just once a year, and, you know, a half hour here, an hour there. And my commercial teams facilitate that. So I start off by making good relationships with all my commercial team leaders, and they know I'm in, I'm available. And I will meet with the security teams or the security leader of the bigger customers. And I also will use my direct reports to assist me because I can't be there for everybody. If it's like a smaller customer, I allow my direct reports to meet with them. And I think that's great because that's mentoring and developing their skills to do the same thing I'm doing. And so that's a force multiplier. It's not just me. It's me plus six other people that can talk to our customers. And as long as we agree upon the message and the principles of the security program, we will be consistently giving a message out to them. That is, look, even if you're going to take a really selfish stance, that alone makes for better vacations and time off. And it's I, I'm kidding, but I'm also being very serious to say, Teams that fail don't do this well. They don't delegate well. And I see it all over the world. For whatever reason, there's this desire to own all of this kind of thing. And I, and, and I, I have ideas. I won't go down that rat hole here, but that you're doing multiple things. You, you are scaling, which is one of the things I've learned in, in breach response and breach management, crisis management, that you do not have enough people, period. You do not have enough people to, to manage the representation of the program and the messaging around whatever the crisis is. And so doing this, whether it's the intention or not, of just the client management piece, which I, I typically spend time on this very point, is so important. So for those listening, begin by taking them with you, as Scott, you know, Scott mentioned, and then have them act in your stead moving forward. You know, get them on that, as you pointed out, have have your sort of run book that you're going to discuss, your presentation, messaging, whatever that might be, but build trust that way. That's so important. And I see many organizations that just don't do it well. And it'll cost them. It'll cost them badly when, a, when the problem begins, whatever the problem is, an outage, a breach. So I love hearing that. I think one of the challenges that many CISOs have is we are humans and we struggle with this idea of humility. And I think we feel like we have to be everything to our company in order for the company to be successful. But in my opinion, and a lesson I learned throughout my 25 years in the Air Force was um, the number one job of a leader is to train the replacement and to make the team successful and not just try to be successful themselves and carry the load themselves. And it releases stress. It increases capability. And overall, in my opinion, it makes the program much more successful. Absolutely. And, and in a way, it makes it seem, I don't know, maybe more, I was going to say honest, but certainly larger, but maybe more capable 
they're not just meeting with the CISO. They're meeting with the person in charge of risk or privacy or, or stock operation, whatever, whoever your six directs are, whatever their core competencies are. They're, they're getting a variety in that process as well, which is good for the commercial team. It's good for you. It's good for them. So it's, it's, you get the variety of the personality as well. And you get exposure to their, their area of expertise, which I think is, is very good. You got to get them trained up right, though. So it, maybe, Scott, if you would, in general, maybe leaning on your military experience, or maybe it's Sabre or wherever else, prepping your directs. So prepping, you know, those that report to you in order to convey the message that represents the team well. Is there anything that you do to help them prep the high-level requirements, expectations? Well, I think it begins with having very good sort of one-on-one conversations, giving feedback to the people, assessing where they're strong and where their skill gaps are. And I'm working with a couple of my directs right now on public speaking and presentations. And, and just not that they're bad public speakers, but that if they want to be a CISO one day, that it's an area that they can improve in. And so we work together on presentations, but more importantly, I give them an opportunity to talk to our CEO or to our executive team. You allow them to do a presentation either with me standing beside them or without me altogether. I'm going on PTO next week and two of my directs are going to be standing in front of my CEO doing a presentation. So I'm very comfortable with that because I know they're prepared and they'll be successful. And I also understand that even if something bad happens, it's okay. We can overcome any sort of challenge where things didn't go perfectly. And uh, that's a, a culture of our company is that uh, as long as you're doing the right thing, never be afraid to take chances and risks and to grow because ultimately it will make us better in the long run. I think that's fantastic. I am a big supporter. You, you mentioned, you know, client facing. The beauty of that work. When you're helping close deals, I've mentioned this before as well, but when you're helping manage the process and there's and you can talk about the names, the trust, the information sharing, then when you have to go into maybe an SLT or an ELT or a board subcommittee meeting or meet with a CEO, you have that much more information in your back pocket to talk about upcoming deals, deals that you just helped close, names, you are now truly embedded into the, the things that make the company thrive. And I think it's not as rare as it used to be. I used to get up and ask CISOs in conferences, how many of you have a relationship with your vice president of sales? And not every company has a sales, not everybody sells something, but generally we all work for a company that sells something. And five, six years ago, people, it was very rare. I get maybe less than 10%. And now the number is getting larger. But I find that amazing. I find it indicative of the lack of maturity in our field sometimes, but it's getting better. And so I love hearing the fact that you're kind of working both sides of this equation, business facing, executive facing. Anything you'd add to that? I did a, a presentation at a conference um, earlier this year. And the topic of the presentation was called The Evolving CISO, From Technical Expert to Executive Leader. And my premise of that was for CISOs to be most successful today, we have to move out of 
our historical comfort zone of being that technical expert of knowing everything about IT and cybersecurity that you can know and move more towards being a business leader, someone that is helping sales or is helping the the corporate back offices be more efficient and more effective. And I actually spend more of my time now thinking about um, profit and expense and how to mentor and grow people than I do about the technical security things. And I think because I do that, that opens my program and myself up to the rest of the business leaders, and they're more willing to let us in the door. It's We're no longer, you know, you're just that technical person. You don't know what I'm doing. I think it's key. We have to transform ourselves before we can become most effective in our businesses. It's funny. So the next item that I have. So for those that don't know, I have a a very high level list of notes, like five or six or seven bullets. And the next bullet I had to cover here with Scott was this presentation. And so he he called it for me even before I the the natural progression of the of the conversation, which is great. I meant to ask, where did you give this presentation or and are you giving it anytime soon? Like multiple presentations of this, or is this a one time thing? I've done it a couple of times in various forums in Dallas, and I also talked through this at Gartner's Security and Risk Management Summit last June. And I, I expect that I would I will do it again. You know, as many of us speak in different opportunities, we're asked to talk about a, a particular topic or subject, but this is something I'm passionate about. And this is also taking me towards my next passion, which is sort of board service. And I'm thinking about, well, how... How now do CISOs move on to that next step and become a part of board of directors? Because there's clearly demand for us, but it's all it's all part of that personal growth and development. Uh, it's just that I am very passionate about being more than just a technologist within a business. So you created this presentation, I'm guessing, as a maybe a, a goal or an idea that's pursuant to your larger goal of being a a board CISO. And so you're wanting to gather your thoughts and share this information. Was this an internal sort of monologue with yourself to say, hey, I want to do this. I'm going to put these thoughts together. Or did someone reach out to you and say, hey, you know, you've been on this journey. Uh, Would you talk about it? it? Was it internal reflection or outside or something else? I think it stems from one of my personal desires of continuous learning. And, you know, historically had gone through many different college degrees, but I'm at the point in my life now where it's more about evaluating skills, strengths, and gaps in how I perform and accomplish my job. And in my first CISO role at Sears Entertainment, I was really simply a technologist and I didn't have opportunity or didn't make opportunity to really engage with other business leaders. But as I moved on to my current role, it was an open door. And I realized that to be more effective than I had previously been, it really required me to engage with the other business leaders and to have strong connections with them. And so I started thinking about, well, what makes me a better business leader, someone that they will want to work with? And there was a variety of different sort of skills or focus areas that I needed to work on, such as engaging our customers and being an asset to the commercial leader 
or engaging our software developers and answering questions for them and helping them to be more productive as developers. Those are things I hadn't really thought about before. But as I did that self-realization, I said, well, there's this whole different set of things that a CISO needs to be to be more engaged as a business leader. And that sort of led me into developing sort of the presentation and the talking points and the thinking around it. It's more of an intellectual thought process than it is a presentation. And it's just, you share it with others as a presentation. Right. I'm just processing what you shared. Making the transition into the new role. I think for those listening that are that have taken on or about to take on a new CISO role or security leadership role, it is difficult for many of us to be, I mean, what I heard there is is number one, be prepared. So level up your skill, but also to be proactive or maybe even more simply said social. We get locked into the core mission, which is protect typically. And sometimes that can breed antisocial behaviors among some, myself included. But also when you're joining a new company, you're kind of having to make friends in a way too. And the best way to go maybe make a friend using this strange comparison is go get involved with what they're doing. You know, say, hey, not even above and beyond, what can I do to help? It's, hey, like <laughs> some of my favorite questions, what's the, what's the worst part of your job? You know, kind of interview them, figuring out, you know, well, here's, is there a way that I can help uh, or a way that I can arm you to better do your job? I think that's what I learned out of this. It's, it's interesting you had that awareness, maybe too personal of a question, and I don't mean it to be, but it's clear you reflected that Caesars was technical. You were going to change that. You were going to be seen as a business leader. Did you get feedback from someone in the process that told you that? Or was there an event that, that informed you of this that was like the aha? Because you're a pretty aware person. So how did like, that clearly was a differentiator, like a, a moment in time, like, I'm not going to repeat this again. I'm going to do this differently. What, what was the trigger there, if you can share? For me, it was the interview process that I went through to go to Sabre. I had a lot of different interviews over different days. I think probably 10 people I talked to. And the only really technical one was the CEIO was going to be my boss. But Every other conversation, you know, different business unit leaders, the CEO. And then and when I eventually interviewed with three board members, that was an eye opener to me. I understood that the business wanted a chief information security officer that was going to be engaged in helping solve the problems of the business, not solving technology problems. And I said, wow because I'd never really even thought about it and like that before. And it was eye-opening and it just made me focus on and I really want to do this. And, it, and I think we all had this desire to be successful at whatever we take on. And for me, it was, okay, I've, I've spent my life as a technologist. Now I want to be a business leader. And who knows, maybe someday I will leave IT and cybersecurity altogether and go some other part of the company and work there. I would find that exciting, to be quite honest with you. As would I. One of the things I ask security leaders often is, what is it that you're going to do after you do security? What is it you're going to do? Are you going to be do board stuff? Are you going to do advisory stuff? Are you going to work in some other area of operations or business? Are you going to go try to do a startup? Are you going to learn about, you, you get a good cross-section of, of, of business there, I assure you. 
what do you do after you're the director of or the CISO of? And we don't have a great answer, typically. So to hear you say that, I think, is really encouraging because I want to see more of that. I've had a couple folks on this show that have gone to be go from CISO to CIO. But honestly, I don't think that's exciting enough, personally. Uh, I think at the point that you're, in fact, I, I know some organizations that have flipped those roles. The CIO reports to the CISO, if that tells you anything. Um, I don't know that I buy that, but it's, it's certainly an interesting change. I'm seeing it more often or some version of it. But I love this idea to say, hey, I'm building myself, is what I'm hearing from you. I'm building myself to be ready for the opportunity to do something beyond, maybe beyond security. I think that's really encouraging and a message, a message that we've never had on the show. The road to get there, which you've shared, is, is also very interesting. The mindset. Can you share a little bit about the questions? I don't think anyone's ever talked about board level interactions in terms of interviews. We talked a lot about interviews, but what did they ask you? Like, can you share in general? Don't say who it was or whatever, but you're, you're interacting with a board member. What did they ask you? I think a lot of it came that there were some challenges um, with my predecessor. And so the board members were very concerned because it was about trust. And there were a lot of questions about my approach to transparency with them my approach to how I was going to help them understand the risk that the company faced. And so significant questioning and it really was really a discussion. It really wasn't a typical interview per se that you might think. Uh, it was more of, here's my concern. What do you think about it? How can we work together? It was really building a relationship with the board members. Uh, that was really what the interview was mostly about is, can they trust me? that I would be transparent with them in terms of cybersecurity risk for the company. A pretty important thing and a valid question. <laughs> but they have to feel that way. And honestly, I hear a lot on the other side where people sometimes still struggle getting enough face time with the board. They still may have to present to the board. But for those that have done it, a lot of times there's, there's a lot of discussion that happens before the board meeting. And having that interaction, you mentioned having cell phone numbers, even being able to meet even briefly to try to have an ally in the room before the message is even delivered is an important thing. So I love the fact that you had, had to spend the time, especially on the, on the topic of transparency, and that it all worked out. I think it's encouraging. One of the things I've learned through doing over 100 of these episodes, 100 CISO interviews, sounds crazy, is you learn a lot by your interview. You learn a lot about what you discuss or don't discuss and who do you interview with. I've had many CISOs, get not many, but a handful to say they interviewed and they didn't interview very high into the organization and they didn't see that that was an issue. They didn't notice it in time. You're interviewing with the board. And I think that's a little bit rare, Scott, which is a good thing. It's good rarity. So credit to Sabre. Well, I also think we as CISOs need to decide if the organization that, that we're interviewing with is an appropriate fit for us. I think we also need to realize that we are all different and there is no one right way to be a CISO or a wrong way. I'm just talking about my way that I do it. And so as we interview, we're interviewing them as well. And we're trying to determine, am I going to be happy and successful working for this organization? Because it goes far beyond what we get paid 
what sort of stock options you get, and all those things. It's about, am I going to wake up every morning and be happy coming to work? Am I going to be challenged? Am I going to feel like I'm contributing? Am I going to feel like I have a voice? And so those are all things that are super important uh, to make good decisions about in whatever work we do or whatever volunteer experience. It's it's about being satisfied with our lives, because if we are, I believe, we will be much more successful in accomplishing whatever that task is. I completely agree. That information, as I say, that answer, wonderful information. It's almost like the, the, the answer that we get on the closing question, which we're not quite ready for just yet, but that's usually like a, the pearl of wisdom that comes at the end of the show that you gave a little early, but I completely agree. What role does our, how well do we fit? And what is our sort of the happiness as part of that and the joy we get? This job is a difficult one, but that doesn't mean that it's not without really joy, I would say, uh, especially you know, hearing you talk about the mentorship and the building of people and the leading of people. I was a technologist. I was an engineer. I was an intrusion analyst. I did architecture, but I have a greater interest and joy out of, I didn't think I would. I never wanted to be a manager or, or anything larger, but um, I, I have much greater joy in, in working in leadership. And I never thought that would be the case. I was, I was happy being the technician. So hearing someone like yourself, that's taking that, you know, well beyond what most would and making that kind of a commitment to career in a form of service to not only a company, but also yourself is, is fantastic. So I appreciate you sharing that. Is there anything else out of your presentation, which again, you know, this evolving CISO presentation that is a soundbite that you'd like to share. That's maybe another piece of advice, an idea that you've helped form that would be helpful to the aspiring leader. I'm struggling coming up with just one. So I'm going to give you two, but I will do it fairly succinctly. The first is never fail to take advantage of a good crisis. The best time to get your organization open and willing to change is when you're in the middle of something that is impacting their daily lives. And so over the past few years, one of the ones I took advantage of was the Russia-Ukraine war. For many of us as security leaders, we faced a, a very significant threat my company used to do a significant amount of business in, in Russia. We used to support Aeroflot, Russia's national airline. And it was a very large piece of our business that we had to stop doing. And we were very concerned about the threats of, you know, the Russian government retaliating or, or anonymous retaliating against us because we were supporting. It, it was ridiculous. There were people all over. And so. During that period of time, I had the ability to actually implement some security controls that I had received extreme resistance on over the previous years. But all of a sudden, people were willing to do it. And I did it. And you know what? We have survived for more than a year after that. And the world didn't come to an end. So that was the first one. Never fail to take advantage of a good crisis. The second one, I think that fear and anxiety can cause a CISO to be unwilling to make decisions. And so one of the most important things as a leader is when you are in charge, take lead and make decisions. Don't be stifled. Don't overanalyze things. 
be willing to take an appropriate amount of risk in the decision that you're making so that you can move forward. And be prepared at any moment to have to adjust and change the direction that you had previously set because it failed. And I think that it's better, I always say, it's better to make a bad decision than to make no decision at all. Yeah, I was doing some research about some how operators, tier one operators make decisions and sort of the chain of command. And uh, they said, you know, when I've got about 60% of what I need to know, that's when I make my decision. He's like, I don't wait for 100%. I don't wait for any. So give me about 55, 60% and then I'll make a call, which is falls directly in line with it doesn't have to be, you know, don't wait. You're never going to have all the information. Just move, um, which is pretty damn good advice. Scott, one last question for you, and it's the way we end every show. Pursuant to the name of it, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? To me, being a new CISO is about being a business executive leader, one that is focused on the success of the company, financial success, customer success, success as a a leader in whatever industry and business that you are doing. If we as CISSOs can meaningfully contribute to the overall success of our organizations, then we have, in my opinion, truly achieved the pinnacle of what we can be as a CISO. Brilliant. Scott, thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for being on the show and for contributing to our virtual mentorship. Well, thank you very much for the time today. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.